Welcome to Arcade Attack. <laughs> A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Sonic Boom! Welcome back, listeners and even viewers on the Arcade Attack podcast. We've got another amazing guest on today's show, a true LucasArts legend. Uh, someone who has, has been involved in so many games, but kind of almost behind the scenes a little bit, I'd say. We've got Brad Taylor here. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm going to say the word scum, I think, <laughs> probably more times in my whole life uh, over the course of the next hour or so. But we're, we're going to a bit more detail about that particular part of your career. But before you, well, before, how did you enter the video game industry? How did you kind of get that big break? And was it something you always in, were you a fan of games before, for example? Were you big into playing games, and how did that kind of evolve into actually getting a career? That's right. Oh, ask. sure. Well, let's see. Was it what I always wanted to do? No, I actually wanted to be an artist. Uh, oh. I, not that I had the talent for it, but I always enjoyed drawing. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where did it start? Um, I was at the junior college in uh, Santa Rosa. Uh, taking a few classes, and the lab coordinator that uh, was there was kind enough to pass on that uh, LucasArts was looking for game testers and game programmers. So I uh, put my hat in the ring. I think I actually uh, wrote my thing for either. I, I didn't care which I got. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was, I you know, I think it might have been just one uh, big long rambling, you know thing about you know what I thought my skills were at the time and uh, that, so it I mailed that in uh, believe it or not back in the days when you actually physically mailed things uh, back and forth and I think a few weeks later I got a, a phone call uh, right. which uh, which was kind of cool and I talked with David Fox for a little bit and they brought me in for an interview and uh, that was quite the uh, quite the amazing day, actually. I met uh, David Fox and Ron Gilbert and uh, Eric Wilmunder. I also met uh, Tim Schaefer, mm. uh, Dave Grossman, Jenny Sward, and Ron Baldwin that day. Um, wow. That was a it was an epic, you know, moving from person to person uh, interview uh, in which they. Spun my head <laughs> with well, you, lots of questions. You, you've reeled off so many gaming legends. I'm sure you agree. You know, have really made a huge impact on the video game industry and um, crazy. And did can I ask actually, were you a fan of, of Lucas Arts or Lucas Film Games at the time? I assume, or at the time, or you know, I had played a, a fair number of them, hmm. uh, but I have to say they were not official copies. I, oh. I was one of the, <laughs> so, like many a person. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I uh, didn't get previews, but I had uh, plenty of uh, free demos. <laughs> if stuff, you will. And did you always like that kind of genre, the kind of point-and-click adventure genre? Then back mm -hmm. in the day, I, I loved uh, adventure games. Actually, mm -hmm. uh, the very first game that I played that made me go, "Hey, I want to make a game," uh, was uh, Colossal Cave Adventure. Right. Okay. And uh, I played, you know, plenty of like Atari Twenty Six Hundred games and. Mm -hmm arcade games and whatnot 
but it wasn't until uh, you know I had a text adventure where my mind was the the canvas that they were playing with that really uh, connected with me. Oh, fair um, enough. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, how would you explain your kind of first few days at Lu- Lucas Arts? Was it chucked in at the deep end? Were you given different roles, responsibilities? I know that you later specialized in the, the scum system, but just just for that sort of time, were you given sure. some responsibilities and? Uh, my very first set of responsibilities were pretty simple. Uh, I was given uh, a seat in the class of Scum U uh, with, uh, <laughs> with a number of other people that were hired the same day. And uh, it was upstairs in the attic of uh, the main house at Lucasfilm uh, Ranch or Skywalker Ranch. And uh, let's see, the first few days were all about learning what existed Um as far as the the tools and the the language and all of that, and uh, we had uh, Sam and Max of all things, uh, oh, wow. a, a little um, kind of a playground, if you will, that we were allowed to do whatever we wanted with it. Um, and uh, basically, we had classes. Um, Ron would get up there and talk about this or that. And uh, let's see, where did Oh, I had a had an interesting part about that, but we'll skip that. Obviously, uh, <laughs> later feel free to chip in. Yeah, certainly. So the the very first week was me just uh, learning what existed, um, getting to know the tools and whatnot, and I didn't end up completing the course. Uh, All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, Eric wanted me to work on um, some actor drawing routines. So the very um, very first piece of code that I wrote was uh, the scaling uh, code for EGA, uh, Monkey Island, you know, characters running around and being able to scale inside their walk boxes. Uh, it was written in C, and I uh, converted it to um, x86 assembly language. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I think, I yeah, think no. it was a, a joke uh, that they handed me one of the more piece of software that I had in the engine just to see what I would do with it. Um, and I I guess I did okay because they had yeah. me rewrite the rest of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, so you you converted Monkey Island, is that right? Or was it into... uh, the, the actor drawing routine. So basically the, the way the old scum system worked um, mm-hmm. was you know, have a flat frame buffer, which is the parts everything renders into. And individual components would render into this flat buffer. Right, right. Uh, and uh, the actors were one of the key elements uh, that moved around, basically. Think sprites, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit smarter. Uh, whereas a sprite was just a simple single-layered entity, usually. Uh, our uh, sprites were, you know, many, many different layers um, so that they could be animated efficiently uh, a, a number of parts because <laughs> there really yeah. wasn't much uh, space in these uh, computers back in the day. So every, you know, bit of reuse that you could get uh, was ideal. No, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, just going on to the scum system a bit now, because obviously my, my, my first point and click game I ever played was Monkey Island, the original, and I, it blew me away. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know games like existed, to be honest. And I'll put my hands up, uh, Brad. I, I took almost the the sort of the scum system for granted i didn't really give it too much thought back then 
But obviously, that was a huge, huge part of LucasArts and Lucasfilm Games and their success and sort of using that in different games. I was just, would you be happy? I, I, you know, don't, I don't want you to sort of talk down to our listeners, but would you, would you be happy to explain what SCUM stands for and, and maybe how you kind of first, uh, why, why was it so pivotal for LucasArts uh, games? Is that right? Oh, certainly. Um, well, it stood for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. Uh, Maniac Mansion was the first game to use it. Um, after, you know, several games that Ron had uh, built, they had decided on a particular genre um, of of game, and they started uh, working on uh, just a traditional game, you know, 6502, <laughs> Target, yeah. uh, Commodore 64. And as they were developing that, it became clear that the, the game was going to be much bigger than would fit in 6502 assembly language. Right. So they started exploring other options. And um, I believe Chip Morningstar um, mentioned to uh, Ron Gilbert uh, that they should use a, an embedded scripting language. Uh, I don't think they used the exact phrase embedded scripting language. But um, so... Let's see, why was it so pivotal? Well, I think that the pivot point with it was the, the fact that it was all domain-specific knowledge. Right. Um, so we had really good grounding in what it took to make a particular type of game. They had uh, several other adventure games that they had done. Um, there was Labyrinth and mm. Aldeon and things like that. Um, which had a, a similar vibe, not necessarily the same underlying, you know, construct, but similar type of field uh, experience. So they were very familiar with what needed to happen to make a particular game uh, go forward, and the uh, the benefits to the Scum Engine were that it had everything abstracted at a level um, that they allowed the, the programmers and to some limited degree the artists as well, some freedom with uh, making, um, how do I explain that? Um, they could write scripts uh, more like uh, in a, um, you know, say line, you know, I, hi, I'm Guybrush, I want to be a mighty pirate, you know, or uh, et cetera. And they, would um, list it out kind of linearly, um, and you know games aren't linear. Um, yeah, yeah. But they were able to construct scenes as if they were linear, and then add in um, the interactions. Uh, that's not explaining it very well. We'll we'll just say it was pivotal uh, because of its. Uh, Simplicity to be used, actually, I think is really um, mm. what it comes down to. The uh, not hard parts, but the difficult parts in writing any piece of software is talking to the metal, getting the resources to be accessible and, you know, pulled in off of disk, sounds to be played. Um, all of these things need to be orchestrated in, in a uh, in some way for in a game of any type to get made. And the SCUM system, after it was initially built, had all of those facilities built in. 
So the game programmers were able to go in there and concentrate on exactly what needed to be written. They didn't have to worry how an actor actually physically drew to the screen or, you know, when they allocated a ray, they didn't need to know where it's at in memory. So they yeah, could yeah. just just write the software um, in their in their um, own language, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like put actor at this particular uh, spot, you know, play this animation, uh, wait for this animation to be completed, and then move on to the next spot uh, in the story, etc. So. I mean, it sounds, I mean, it is complex getting it all to, to work, but obviously getting that right, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Brad, would, would be useful for other games and you can sort of transfer it over. And I think that's, I, I don't know if, if like King's Quest uh, had that kind of system. I don't know, really. I don't know if you know, really, if the, because that was quite a, a big advantage for LucasArts. Would you agree at the time? Yes, it was a very big advantage. Um, the system from... Uh, Sierra, I believe that they had their own uh, kind of work-alike, you know, mm. type of thing where they had a virtual platform, uh, an idealized machine, if you will, mm. that uh, they would write their software to, and then that would be, you know, made to run on each of the platforms. That right, right. It, uh, same type of concept that we to what we did. Our abstractions were slightly different. Uh, we had um, some rather clever people in the teams um and they uh built some pretty fantastic things um the way uh characters moved around on the screen was quite clever in comparison in my opinion to the way uh the sierra uh sierra's characters would often get stuck in places on the screen um just as a side effect of you know computers not really being that smart at pathfinding and you know the screens themselves are complicated little uh, things and twisted little pixels uh so getting a character to move around smoothly into any point and place that uh, the characters wanted to go Uh, but the scum engine uh used walk boxes uh which was um if you can imagine the heavier screen and you lay out little um polygons to where you want the actors to be able to situate themselves Mm -hmm. and uh we built pre-computed tables of if you clicked near a, a polygon, that means that you're wanting to go to it. And it would already know that to get to polygon three, you have to go through polygon two and number one, uh, four and maybe, you know, six. And that would be the smallest path to it. So it would make a, a character look like it had some smarts as it walked and navigated around. Um, and that, those were all done through... Uh, Kind of pre-computed things. That's uh, pretty clever. Yeah. Again, who, I, I take it for granted when you play these games personally, which which is bad, really. And I don't want to offend you, but oh, just yeah, no. when you think about it, it's crazy, isn't it? It is. It's amazing that uh, games actually work at all. Uh, in, in my, <laughs> I, I think they're pretty fantastic because yeah, yeah. you're building stuff that represents. Uh, not just a, an experience, but the whole experience mm-hmm. uh, in, in its entirety. You know, it's like the out of pretty much nothing uh, other than an idea is where almost all of these things start. Um, and you can, I don't know, um, the, the fact that we can build things that are interactive yeah, uh, still amazes me. 
Nah, fair play. I'd love to know, Brad, actually, when you, when did you sort of first lay your eyes on the, the initial scum system from Ron Gilbert? I think he, he invented it. And what was it like back then? And maybe uh, was it quite a daunting task initially? I mean, obviously, yeah, Ron is a, a real legend, but what, what was it like early doors seeing this program? Did it take a while to get used to, for example? It did take a, a while to uh, wrap my head around it. Um, the The experience that I had um, up to that point was relatively minimal, I would say, <laughs> all things considered. <laughs> um, I, I, I knew very little uh, going into it. I mean, I thought I knew a lot, but uh, reality is I, I didn't. Um, let's see, what's what did it, was it like? It was all uh, low resolution. We stayed low resolution up until the mid-90s. Um, uh, just physically pushing uh, 320 by 200 pixels across the screen on any sort of device. That was kind of magic back in the day, uh, especially for machines that didn't have custom hardware for doing it. Yeah, yeah. Like the Amiga had advantages um, in that it had actual sprites <laughs> and bit planes and all of these things. that, And they cared about performance to some degree, uh, whereas on the PC side, you basically had nothing but a flat buffer and you oh, could do yeah. whatever you wanted with it um, uh, as little or as lot as you could <laughs> squeeze into it um, let's see um, when I first saw it it was uh, all 16 colors mm. um, the the tools themselves were um, not primitive primitive by today's standards but uh, at the time uh, I was familiar with the Lux paint and right, yeah, course, I, yeah. I don't know if you've uh, used yeah. Deluxe Paint. Most likely you have if you've had it. Deluxe Paint was a, an amazing piece of software. And it had uh, all of the, the drawing tools that you would want, the ability to do palette management, um, et cetera. But it didn't really have layers. And that's where the, the tool set uh, that... Um, Lucas had built, they had this uh, animation program called Bile, and it's B-Y-L-E. Um, I don't think it actually stood for anything, and I'm really, I've asked uh, around, and nobody can remember why it was called Bile, other than just that it is a disgusting bodily fluid. And that, <laughs> that, that made the, uh, the, the name of it easy when you're searching for things. Uh, uh, but yeah, so it had layers, and, and that was the kind of magic point for me. Um, it not only had layers, but it had a little, um, like a timeline inside Flash. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Flash, but it's kind of um, has a horizontal timeline of which components are actually visible at any uh, particular time. Mm. And that is something that Bile had in uh, spades it had the ability to have i think that we had um i think we did have limits i think it might have been 16 limbs as oh. as a limit um but that means that you could have you know 16 individual sprites or limbs in this particular terminology uh displaying at the same time in the same animation and it allowed um Pieces to be, you know, like your arm could be chopped off and made into a, 
a thing that could slide horizontally or vertically a little bit to give that sense of motion. And instead of being one single piece of art that we had to store, we would just store the, it's the, the it is at this position. So you get a good amount of reuse out of it. Um, Flem, let's see, was another tool that we used. And it was I love a, the name. Uh, <laughs> oh, they're, they're, they're quite uh, fantastic. Uh, we didn't always have uh, great names uh, for things. <laughs> we didn't have clever things like uh, script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, uh, which uh, uh, I, w I wish we had named them with all, you know, some sort of, you know, cleverness <laughs> behind them. Yeah. Um, uh, Flem was our uh, walk box and room object definition tool. And it was, um, uh, at the time, it didn't have any code generation things. That's mm -hmm. stuff that we added to it later. Um, but it would visually let you take the art from D-Paint, and you would be able to annotate it in, like, this is where the clock is at. And this is, you know, the mm -hmm. clock, um, you know, tick-tock um, animation thing that would go back and forth. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on that. Uh, what that is. The pendulum. Yeah. Um, uh, you would uh, define your objects inside inside Flem. Uh, define the walk boxes and define um, what you could clip behind and uh, be in front of. So the actors uh, could go behind a desk, for instance, and be in front of the desk. And to do that, we used um, masking of sorts. Um, instead of drawing a whole object, uh, we couldn't afford to draw the desk and the actor behind it. Uh, mm. So we would just draw uh, just the actor minus the desk, uh, yeah, if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course it does. It's, again, stuff I don't really think or thought about before, but it's really interesting. So Flem was all about that. Um, we had another uh, tool called Mucus, which was <laughs> almost scum spelt backwards. Um, and it yeah. was the thing that would take the output of Flem and it would compress the art and compress the Z planes, put all the walk boxes into um, some sorted order. And then uh, Scum would consume the stuff from Mucus and mix in its magic uh, sauce, if you will, yeah. the, all of the scripts and uh, the sounds and everything. And then it would get built into one final um, binary, if you will. And that would be consumed by Sputum. Uh, which was the actual engine name. <laughs> and uh, so we had a, a, a number of other little tools, like we had Spit, and uh, at some point they had a really nastily named uh, thing, which got renamed. It was, uh, sorry, this is Smegma was one of the tools at one point until we learned what it was. Yeah. And then we no longer had that tool, <laughs> that name for it. Anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I honestly don't remember other than just the the terminology. Uh, oh wow! Uh, but uh, so sputum would uh, be what uh, you would run the actual game, and that was the part that would be um, ported to each individual system. Mm. So sputum was uh, the game was built on, on this uh, kind of physical or an abstract platform. 
you know, it had an idea of what a screen size was, what the video buffer, those sort of things, you know, what an input uh, system was. And that would get ported to the Amiga or the Atari ST, the PC, the mm. C64, the FM Towns, uh, let's see, CDTV, which not that that's much wow. different than an Amiga, but it, it was at the time it had a CD drive. Um, but yeah, so the, the engine itself is what um, most people are familiar with. It's incredible hearing this. It's, I mean, this might be a silly question, but I don't think it's on my list. But you, you've obviously contributed so much to so many classic games. But did you kind of work on these games, or would you almost argue you did the stuff before the games? And that's a bit of a weird question. But were you given a brief? This is what we're going to make now. We're going to make Sam Max or Day of Tentacle or or, or Grim Fandango, whatever it is. But were you then told to work on the Scum Engine first or during? I just like to sort of join the dots a bit. Oh, oh, sure. Um, so it was a separation of concerns mm. uh, in, in fancy parlance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they would uh, be working on the game design, and right. uh, they being. Um, the creative, uh, more creative staff. Um, uh, less, I wouldn't say less technical because that's not really the right way to say it. It's like their their concerns were different. Their concerns were how to be funny, how to tell a story in some succinct way that um, makes sense. The puzzles need to, you know, be grokkable. <laughs> <You know? laughs> all all of those sort of things and. Uh, the, you wouldn't. You don't want those people uh, worrying about the types of things that I worry about. Right. You yeah. know whether or not the thing is as small as it can be on disc, or it draws <laughs> to the screen as fast as it can. Uh, that really, you know, the fact that you know, uh, you know, Guybrush can zip around the screen isn't as important to them as you know him having a focus to go from point a to point b or follow the shopkeeper etc that they allowed to do that um so no i i at lucas arts i never really worked on the the games themselves other than yeah. the technology and they would have at the very beginning a list of things that they knew that they wanted um and if there was something that the system couldn't do we would um try to build that in so that as they started the game, they wouldn't have to worry about whether this feature would exist or not. Right. They, yeah, yeah. they could go ahead and um, build with the assumption that this will work and it will, you know, meet our needs uh, uh, as they go along. At Humongous, I did um, some game work. Um, I okay, have cool. a particular style of game that I like. I like match three type games. I've been making them for way, way too long at this point. Um, but I had a more arcade type uh, game experiences to me than storytelling, it turns out. Oh, fair um, enough. So. Yeah, well, yeah. We're talking about humongous, definitely. Um, um, I mean, did you ever, I, I don't want to yeah, you know, upset you, but did you ever feel like you, obviously you, you're part of the, the crew, but did you almost feel like, oh, I'm not really part of the game itself? Or did you feel no, a bit weird to be detached or? You know, I always felt fairly connected to it. Um, everything that uh, got drawn on the screen went through something I wrote. Yeah, yeah, course, <laughs> Whether yeah. or not they wanted it or not, it went through something <laughs> I wrote. Um, 
So, no, I always felt connected to the games. Uh, I think that the games themselves um, are works of art. And yeah, yeah. I'd always felt uh, privileged to have uh, been part of them. But um, never felt uh, separate from it. No, no, I, I definitely felt, you know, part of the team. And uh, we had inverse mm-hmm. schedules, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, inverse in that my, you know, shipping date was more or less at the beginning of the project for them. Yeah, of course, of course. And yeah. their shipping date was, you know, usually in a more lax period for me. Like, you know, we yeah, would yeah. be focusing on anything that they had produced that didn't work right on whatever target. Um, but they allow it allowed them to um, go with the knowledge that the things were going to be there and they could build the entire game with a, you know, existing structure underneath them. So, oh. yeah, good stuff. Um, Obviously, you mentioned earlier that Ron Gilbert kind of created the Scum Engine. Would you would you say it's fair? I know, again, you can say that complete rubbish that he kind of passed the baton on to you to continue the Scum Engine. He kind of then went back to sort of game design elements, or, or was he always kind of helping in the background on that on, on the Scum Engine still? He was quite prolific uh, with um, both game design and yeah. uh, engine design. He had a, a great mind for that. It still does, actually. <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah, he did ha- pass the baton, if you will. Um, actually, it wasn't just to me. Um, Eric Wilmunder was another uh, person at uh, Lucas Arts that um, was part of the the team. And let's see, where did I, where was it going with that? Oh yes, um, the separations. Um, uh, of concerns uh, allowed as we started getting a, a bigger team and them becoming more familiar with you know what I could bring to the table and what obviously Eric and Ron brought to the table allowed um, Ron to get freed up a little bit. Right, but yeah. the the compiler um, he worked on up most of the time uh, up until probably ninety six actually it was wow. his little baby. And um, his uh, design of that was very brilliant. Um, it had many things that in today's um, systems, uh, we're starting to see cool things like it, where we're managing complexity and concurrency in, in titles. Um, but those were built in from the very beginning. Um, and... Uh, where was I going with that? I've lost my train of thought. I don't know where I was going with that. Really interesting, Brad. So yeah, you just you're, yeah, yeah, talking about how you kind of took it on from um, run run a little bit, weren't you? And yeah, incredible. Um, just to fill us in a bit, what games did you sort of uh, sort of work on, or the Scum system work on when when you were hired and kind of? Are you happy to put like a timeline? I my oh thumb, sure yeah. Interesting to know, so when I first started. Uh, it was in June of uh, 1990. Uh, uh, Monkey Island was probably about halfway done by mm-hmm. the time I came in. So they had a good sense of what the game was going to be. Um, uh, it didn't have all of the things optimized yet, but they had the uh, the core mechanic of what they wanted mm-hmm. done. The storytelling was, you know, getting done as as the days progressed through it. Uh, Things were a little bit more fluid back in those days where you could uh, write 
software up to the very last minute. Um, not that you didn't want it to go through tests, but um, you, the, the closer to the, the ship date, the less uh, grand the changes are <laughs> um, as you go. Um, so the very first game uh, that I worked on was uh, Monkey Island. Uh, at the same at the same time, they were working on a few other titles for the FM Towns, um, and those were going. They were done by a separate team. Um, not entirely sure what their team size was, but it was funded by Fujitsu, mm. and it allowed them to uh, use hardware that was much cooler than the PC uh, was at the time. It was a uh, 386. Um, it it's had FM Towns. It's not a, is that a Japanese console? It is a Japanese. It is a Japanese console. Yeah, I, don't, yeah, yeah. I don't think it uh, ever came out in the States or if it did, yeah. it was very um, late in the game by the mm. time it, it came to the States. I think it was called the FM Marty when it mm. made to to the States. The um, Let's see. The next game that got started was um, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Oh, um, such a great game. <laughs> it is a good game. Had had a lot of really interesting um, aspects to it. Um, really pushed uh, color cycling and... Um, Multiple branches, actually. Yeah, I was going to say the pathway system. That must have really been quite. Yeah, we've we've I've spoken to Noah Forstein before, and he's you know really explained it there. But the kind of scum element of it must have been quite a challenge as well. Is that fair? It, it was uh, the very first Monkey Island, uh, Monkey Island uh, Maniac Mansion had uh, the ability to switch between characters, um, but didn't have the same breadth of the experience that you're um, switching between. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> no, it, it, let's see what, after, uh, let's see, got, um, the dig was also being, uh, worked yeah. on at the, at the same time. Um, that, uh, was a project that was very long in the, in the process of, of yeah. making, uh, it was, it turned out pretty well, I think. Um, I, I've played it relatively recently. I loved it. But I, when I did some research on it, uh, Brad, it, it went through a lot of changes. A lot of people were in charge of it and left it. And Were you there from the beginning? And do you see it go up and down? And... I, I did see it. It was always a project that was in the background being worked mm. on by somebody. Um, mm. that, in the background's not really the right word. It was always being worked on. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think it really turned out well in the sound department, the gaffing, if you will. Uh, if you listen to it, it's it's really well put together, um, mm. audio-wise, in my opinion. It seems to have had more um, environmental sounds, um, in my opinion, oh, than stuff, the yeah. other games. And let's see. During the final, since I was only at uh, Lucas for two years, because uh, mm. we went and we left, um, but there was also uh, Day of the Tentacle had just started up, uh, and I remember the um, kind of the big um, innovation uh, for from my side of things was we put in um, 
something that we called uh, interactive templates. So inside of Flim, uh, which was the tool that you defined your rooms in, uh, you used to, you know, say this is where this object is at, this is the Z plane, um, et cetera. Um, but you would still have to write the code. And with interactive templates, there was a kind of a general form that things would take. You know, it's like it would syntactically, there's things that the compiler wants to see. So interactive templates would be something where you could say, I want to make a door, and it goes from point A, to, uh, from this room to this room. And uh, interactive templates would, you know, squirt out a bunch of code um, right. with the, this is the door, this is where it goes to, and then they could go in and clean up the, the output from the thing. And it allowed them to go from literally weeks of work to wire up an entire game to, you know, days uh, really? to get the to get the general flow of from point A to point B. Instead of typing all that stuff out manually, uh, right. it would do the the gross um, editing for you, and then they go in and make all of the um, actual decisions. That you know, <laughs> it's like when when you have this inventory item and you click on this item. Um, but the structure of it was, uh, wasn't something that they had to type out. And that actually um, sped up the process quite a bit because mm -hmm. it allowed them to not have to, you know, enter in manually all of that, that data um, at first, I mean, ultimately they had to go back and edit it because they wanted yeah, yeah. to do something more than what the uh, template would provide. But it would go, um, it sped things up. I remember mm -hmm. instead of weeks, it was, you know, days that they had gotten the general flow of the game down, um, which is cool. Um, we uh, built on that system at Humongous quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. We uh, tried to remove... Anything that could be shaved off of something was time saved. If I could save five minutes of a person's day, even if it was you know just that one person, that's five minutes uh, that gets multiplied by all the people uh, oh. times all of the objects that you it, do. It? So it just kind of adds up. Um, gets really a multiplicative effect, if you will. <laughs> I wonder. How many days you saved with the scum system uh, over time uh, for LucasArts employees? Uh, who knows? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but no, uh, no. I, I think close. I we, we just offset days. Uh, the, yeah. the days were spent somewhere else. Um, <laughs> hopefully, better than uh, spending a day typing in, you know, where the object is located um, or how it's structured in the code. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it would be interesting to know um, time-wise if, if there was a, a significant savings, and I'm pretty sure there was. Um, given the yeah. scope of size of the catalog of software that was written mm. on the engine, um, it, it certainly it had to have had to effect. My ego says it had an effect. <laughs> I mean, so do you think Day of Tentacle was your last kind of game you, you, you sort of left left on? You sort of put the scums. Yeah, that was 
Lucas, yeah. Yeah, at, at LucasArts. Uh, I continued my work at Humongous. Um, mm. with, with, with Ron, is that right? You left with Ron and I think Tammy as well. And Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Brett Barrett, uh, Tammy, um, Ron Gilbert, Shelley Day. Um, yeah, those were the main people mm -hmm. that came with us from LucasArts. And I've got I've got to ask Brad because obviously you you, you left LucasArts but the the scum system continued it was evolved and it, I think it went all the way up to well I don't know maybe up to even Thimblewood Park or even the new Monkey Island who knows but it's still being used there arguably but did did things just from the background were you quite impressed how things changed were you like oh I would have done I don't make you get angry at people would you have said oh, I've done things differently or was it quite interesting to see it evolve up to you know even today really. <laughs> Oh, it was, it was amazing to see it evolve. I mean, because yeah. when you look at uh, the types of experiences uh, that it was able to produce, uh, we had games that were, you know, as going back as far as the Commodore 64, uh, mm -hmm. Maniac Mansion, um, was, was a relatively simple game in its uh, core elements. I mean, it wasn't anything that people hadn't seen except for maybe the ticking clock and the switching between path our characters and whatnot uh, and the verb interface. Uh, but if you look at the, the breadth of uh, types of games that were done in the system, uh, we went from, you know, point and click games all the way up to real time strategy games. Yeah. Um, so it had a, had a fair, you know, fair run, <laughs> I would yeah. say. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw um, Moonbase Commander, uh, but it was a fantastic I game. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen it was, it was uh, written in the Scum system. Uh, it was uh, four-player, uh, uh, real-time strategy uh, game with a unique hook. You, you should check it out. I, I think that um, the game is underappreciated. I oh. believe it, even in the day that it came, day it was a, you know kind of out there it was i believe given the best game nobody played um <laughs> of the year it's called Moonbase. um uh moon base commander okay i will try it out. i love rts games actually I, i'm a, it's a big genre i'm a fan of actually so i will try it out um yeah i'm, I'm guilty and i'm guilty thinking the scum system was more for adventure games point of view yeah which, which i love as well but it's quite incredible that you, you said it was used for so many other genres and stuff i mean again I didn't really put the two together, really. So that's really interesting to to hear that. Yeah. Well, once we got the core elements of what was being animated mm. was um, completely artistically driven. Uh, so it didn't matter, you know, if it was an educational game, you know, it's still going to play the animations back in a particular way. And all of the yeah. infrastructure that we built up for, um, Managing memory, managing sounds, playing back, um, you know, scripted scenes, all of those things could be used by any sort of um, game. Uh, and it really didn't matter uh, that it was initially made for a point, point and click uh, mm -hmm. types of ex experiences. The, um, the mechanism, nothing tied it to a particular genre. 
uh, as things uh, progressed. Initially, it was very specific to the type of games, and you can see um, similarities in the way games are constructed in in the system. And you can almost see it, um, well, ratchet up the complexity of the games with the machine power that um, existed at the time. Because machines back when they were, you know, under 20 megahertz um, are just pathetic by today's standards. I mean, here. <laughs> Your average, you know, Taco Bell freebie, you know, toy in the kids' meal has more computational power, uh, most likely than uh, than we had to play with in those days. So as as the machines got more robust, uh, so did the games. Um, yeah, of course. So that, yeah. that allowed them to branch out and do things. Uh, also, the engine as it matured, so did the people that were using it. Right. Uh, they got more adept at. Um, coaxing it into doing things that it, it we hadn't thought of to do at the beginning. So I don't know if that makes any sense. But oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that does. That's really interesting. Um, I've got a few sort of quick-fire questions about the kind of scum engine and so forth. Things like um, you, you, you were involved in some of the games that moved into sort of voice acting, the talkies. So Fate of Atlantis famously had, I think, full CD-ROM sort of talking in it. And was that a challenge? Was that a difficult thing to sort of incorporate or was that quite easy to bring in? Eric Wilmunder did the, the work on that. Um, and I wouldn't say that it was easy. Uh, <laughs> there were lots yeah. of things that needed to be um, worked out, uh, such as the uh, Red Book audio, uh, uh, which was used for uh, music and whatnot. Some CD-ROM drives had a wild interpretation of the spec. Um, so, you know, what would happen if you tried to load data while the CD was playing music? Um, what would happen? That wasn't really specified out. So some things it would pick the audio back up after you loaded your data. Some would, wow. you know, just lose track of where it was at. So those sort of details uh, wow. <laughs> had to be um, compensated for. So, you know, Eric would, you know, before he tried to load anything, he would, you know, ask the CD, where are you at, you know, musically, uh, so that he could restore it to as close to that position as possible. Um, yeah, yeah. And so would, the music would unpause in the, the appropriate way. But, yeah, the, the system itself uh, treated talkies a little special. Because uh, there is usually only one talkie uh, going on at a time, uh, yeah. thankfully. And um, musically, they were able to stream most things in uh, ahead of time, get the music going, and then uh, trigger any sound effects or audio um, talkies, etc. That sounds like a challenge. So, again, stuff I didn't really think about before so you know it's, it's an interesting if, challenge, it, isn't it? if it's working then you shouldn't notice it yeah no that's, uh, that's probably fair actually you don't want people to think about it, it should be just seamless shouldn't it really in a weird way exactly you just uh, it, no, it, no more disc swapping is what our, our goal yeah. was <laughs> it seems like you, as always, an amiga yeah. person you would know yeah. about just swapping oh, <laughs> monkey island too <laughs> what an amazing game but blimey the amount of discs is crazy wouldn't it? let's be honest <laughs> Yeah, we, um, we squeezed a lot of art into that game. A lot of art. And you worked on Monkey Island too, is that right? You did you work on yes. that? Yeah. 
Um, oh yeah, I forgot about Monkey Wonder too. Yeah, I was, I, I, I was just I trying to. I don't think you mentioned it earlier. What? That's a great game. <laughs> um, how about moving the Scum system to Windows ninety five? Are you there at that point? That kind of weird transition from I think DOS to Windows ninety five and so forth. Was that quite challenging, or was that like a, again quite seamless? Or well. Uh, yes, in ways it was seamless, and other ways it was just tremendously difficult. Um, in the fact that we went from a resolution of 320 by 200 to yeah. 640 by 480, that's almost five times as much graphics, 4.8 mm -hmm. times as much. And, um, believe it or not, the five almost five times as much graphics costs five times as much time to draw. <laughs> uh, so uh, we weren't allotted any more uh, frames per second uh, on the machines. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, there was an upper limit of what the machines could uh, display. So challenging-wise, uh, getting just things on the screen in those days in Windows was quite a quite a big feat, if you will. And there's lots of reasons why uh, people didn't go uh, adopt Windows as a gaming platform until after DirectX and, yes. uh, and because the the hardware was there to do it. Uh, I was like, had power sitting behind it, but the getting it through the APIs from Microsoft to get it to the screen yeah, it yeah. wasn't as um, fluid as it is today, mm -hmm. to say the least. Um, so in addition to the... Uh, just biggie sizing it, if you will, <laughs> the, the graphics. Um, we also had to deal with uh, all sorts of fun things where um, we were building for a platform that wasn't uh, complete uh, at the time that we were yeah. doing it. I think Tammy, so, I think, sorry to try, I think Tammy was telling me that story about how she had to work on stuff that it wasn't even released and there was, was things updated and things. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, we predated. Um, Windows 95, we actually hedged our bets um, mm. and we built everything on top of a Win32 layer. Um, right, yeah, uh, yeah. So when no, Windows 95 was uh, a 32-bit operating system. Mm. Um, Windows 3.1 was a 16-bit operating system, but it had uh, this subsystem, which you called Win32S, um, and it basically installed... Uh, a 32-bit operating system alongside the 16-bit operating system. Wow. And that's what we actually targeted. Um, so we were able to uh, via Win32S as well as Windows 95. So we, we didn't go straight to Windows 95. We yeah. uh, had an installed base uh, of Windows 3.1.1 users out there uh, that we had to uh, consider. Yeah, a piece still. Yeah, look after. But That's... let's see what else went wrong or what went right. Um, <laughs> the the tools as we were going from uh, low res um, three twenty by two hundred uh, actually had rectangular pixels, not square pixels. Um, wow. So okay. so we had to um, change. All of the tools had to be uh, redone <laughs> to basically deal with this new aspect ratio. Luckily, it was the same aspect aspect ratio, but it uh, wasn't the same. So every every tool that we had had to change. Uh, re the resolution had to 
changed, the aspect ratio changed, um, uh, the complexity of the APIs changed, um, That's crazy. to say the least. <laughs> um, but we actually kind of got lucky um, in that we had previously ported the engine many different places. I mean, it started on the Commodore 64 and went from the Commodore 64 to the PC, from the PC to the ST and the Amiga, etc. So we had a, an idea of how to do that. Um, mm. And we had actually just finished up porting the engine to uh, the 3DO system. And the 3DO was actually an amazing piece of hardware at the mm. time. I mean, looking back on it, it seems quite primitive. Um, but it was, it was pretty um, robust, to say the least. And so a lot of the things that we had to work on uh, with Windows, we had already built in, like we had a uh, audio mixer that was very different on the 3DO than we had yeah, on the yeah. PC up to that time, because it actually had the ability to play uh, digi four digital audio tracks at the same time with DMA channels. And that allowed us to do all sorts of things. Like we built on top of... Um, I don't know how to explain that. Um, well, we built on top of what we, we had, you know, for the Amiga, uh, mm -hmm. the concept of having multiple uh, sound channels going uh, simultaneously and whatnot. Um, and so the Amiga uh, influenced the 3DO. Um, wow. And then the 3DO ultimately influenced uh, the Windows uh, ports of the engine. It was not, not a seamless, not a direct transfer of technology, but a lot of it. Like the 3DO didn't have a palleted um, video mode in the same way that we had in on the PC. It ended up to be more efficient for us to actually just write out 16-bit uh, color data uh, than to actually try to use their palleted things uh, because it just... CPU-wise, it just wasn't up to the pushing the data. So yeah. we had already eaten a lot of time figuring out how to speed certain parts of the engine up to get that mm. data going through. So we were already used to pushing twice as many pixels as 8-bit. Um, and then when we went to you know almost five times as many pixels, it was just only having to double the speed. Uh, you know, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, five times as much. It was a, oh, yeah. a doubling rather than uh, that aggressive. What, what was released on the 3D? I, I, I put my hands up. I don't know which games. Ah, uh, we released uh, on Humongous's side uh, only. Right. Yeah. I, I, I really wish we had a because Day of the Tentacle and uh, yeah. Sam and Max easily could have been uh, moved over there. Um, compared to the PC, it was quite a robust platform. Mm -hmm. But we shipped uh, four games uh, for the uh, 3DO. We shipped Putt-Putt, uh, 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 <laughs> Joints and Parade, um, uh, He Goes to the Moon. Um, we did a, a Fatty Bears Fun Pack and a Putt-Putt Fun Pack and another game called Fatty Bear. So I guess it was actually five titles. Yeah, um, fair enough. Um, it was an interesting uh, summer. We got the machine... Um, uh, development machine about mm, four months before the actual machine shipped yeah. and we hit uh we were one of the first titles uh which was that's a, that's a big cool. achievement 
it was it was a uh, it was a tremendous summer. <laughs> you yeah, know, it yeah. was uh, it was really hot. I remember that part, and I remember the people <laughs> that were had the building behind us uh, were using their saw. It seemed like twenty four seven. There was no silence in my office. <laughs> thanks <laughs> to them. Um, but yeah, no the um, the evolution of uh, the system from place to place. Uh, every engine, or not engine, but every system that it went to brought something to the equation. Mm -hmm. Whether uh, like the 3DO uh, brought to it, uh, we had to actually go 32-bit on the 3DO because 16-bit ints in their compiler at the time um, just broke code that was broken. Right, um, okay, interesting. So it was like a, you would be traveling through your normal execution and then okay, whenever it would hit um, a, a short 16-bit uh, int, it would have a chance of not generating proper code. Um, it took nice. a, a few days to figure that out, but once we did, we went through and we biggie-sized the short variables all to ints and that um, took care of that code generation problem. Uh, but it was a uh, not necessarily we had we had to eat memory because of that because uh, instead of having two bytes represent an int it was now four bytes uh size yeah. so everything everything doubled in size <laughs> in memory um thankfully they had a lot of memory in those machines yeah, yeah, yeah. had they not it would have been uh, almost impossible wow I mean, that, that's fascinating, Brad. I love hearing this sort of stuff. It's, um, again, things I don't really think about, but it's, uh, yeah, obviously you had to think about it 24 seven at some point, didn't you? Just getting this stuff working. Um, did you ever meet Trip Hawkins at 3DO by any chance or was it? I did. Um, he did. Okay, got, awesome. uh, he was really an amazing guy. Um, uh, just a, a slick person. Yeah. I, I, it, you know, just himself was, um, he felt um, genuine uh, yeah. when, he, when he was talking to you, uh, which was, you know, for meeting somebody that high up the food chain at, at yeah. the company. Um, he he was he was pretty slick. I, I would have to say. Uh, yeah. I've and I've re I've remet him many times. No. <laughs> I don't think he remembered my name any of the times <laughs> afterwards. Um, but yeah, no, it it was it was neat. Uh, and then. The 3DO, I, I never sort of sort of joined adventure games with 3DO, and apologies, but was that something that Trip was quite happy to get on his system? It's like, yeah, we should promote this genre, or when you spoke to him, or was he? Uh, he was happy to get anything um, mm -hmm. going. At the time, uh, they were very startup, you know, based. Yeah. I mean, we were in a little yeah. bitty tiny building at the time. They were in a tiny building. Oh, was it really? Uh, yeah. Um. And uh, so I think they were just happy to get anybody signing up to make software. And mm -hmm. the fact that we agreed to bring, you know, I think we agreed three titles, but we ended up with five. Um, was there, um, we, we expanded the catalog. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. they were happy to have that. I, I really wish that they had uh, taken and gotten Capcom uh, to port uh, Street Fighter 2. Had they had that at the very beginning, I think it would have changed. I mean, an arcade perfect Street Fighter 2 um, would have 
change things for them, I think. They got a Street Fighter 2 later, didn't they? I think down the chain. They did. But yeah, but a launch title would have been... I, or, I agree, actually. Yeah, ha- um, having nothing... Uh, well, <laughs> the uh, 3DO suffered from a glut of uh, multimedia titles. Um, I hate mm. to, to say it, but uh, three- to eight-year-old software is very different than what you want to launch a $800 console at. Um, yeah. it's, it's just... Um, was unfortunate. Well, and you're a big fan of Street Fighter, I take it. Is that a oh, I am. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we uh, played that game religiously. Um, what, at Humongous at LucasArts or just? At, uh, at Humongous and, and LucasArts. We used to go to the arcade and play. Um, nice. Brett Barrett and I used to just spend limit, limitless hours, you know. <laughs> uh, the the uh, When we I decided to be humongous. There was a, about a, a period of about six months that I knew I was going to be leaving and uh, leaving LucasArts. Mm-hmm. And um, Brett had uh, finished up his tour of duty, if you will, with uh, the games that he is working on. So we had a, a lot of uh, a free time. Uh, yeah. when, we won't, when we weren't working and we went to the arcade uh-huh. all the time. Uh, it was it was tremendous fun, um, and at Humongous, yeah, yeah, we we bought the uh, the Super Nintendo version, the um, mm. the Famicom version. Yeah. When it, the minute it came out, <laughs> and we just played that until you know, we would just have to replace joysticks yeah. weekly. Who, who's your go-to character? Have you got a favorite character? Uh, Ryu was my favorite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I also liked Blanca um, and. Uh, Guile as well. Yeah. Uh, he was kind of a cheap little guy, though. <laughs> yeah. he, you could buffer way too much with him. Yeah. I mean, from the squat position, you could attack, you know, three different ways. And, you know, <laughs> period. <laughs> it was all there was. <laughs> uh, we uh, used to joke, one of the uh, people we worked with was named Pete. And we used to call it Pete Fighter. Uh, because oh, right, yeah. he would uh, use Ryu. And he had the fastest low kick that you could possibly imagine i i uh he would just beat you to death with his foot (laughs) well yeah and it worked you know that was the uh the beauty of it until uh you know you figured out that was all he had to pete fighter was you know nothing but you know low low kicks so (laughs) once you figured that out you know oh man oh that's sorry to go off the Apologies for listeners, but I think I, I love Street Fighter, so I could talk about it all day as well. Um, what was um, so Ron Gill? But when you, you know, let's be honest, he's, he's a proper legend. And um, were you? Did you get on with him from day one? What was it like working with him? And, and you obviously moved with him to Humongous Games, didn't you, Brad? So it's mm-hmm. not like you know. Are you happy to sort of go into a little bit of detail about what it was like working with? Uh, oh Ron? sure, uh, Ron uh, was incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. Smart as smart as can be. Uh, yeah. Also contemplative i would say you know he would think uh before he acted um which is a really good thing to have in a leader so he'd he'd ponder the thing before he would act on it uh there wasn't a lot of knee-jerk reactions to things uh it was like okay all right this is what's happening let's figure out the process and then go through the process um so there was there was good uh, 
intuitive leaps, I would say, with Ron, uh, but never any um, flippant, you know, things that would change radically from moment to moment. He was very stable and um, contemplative, I would say, uh, which is really good. I think he, he balanced my. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm more reactive. Uh, right. Uh, so it, it was a good balance, I think. Uh, I uh, with uh, at LucasArts, I, I mainly worked with uh, Ron and Eric Wilmunder the most. Uh, I mean, I had lots of dealings with the game programmers and you know QA and all of that. But the bulk of my time was spent with Ron and Eric, uh, mm. and uh, both of them are just cracker smart, <laughs> just incredible uh, people. I'm Eric. sure you can hold your own breath. Well, you can't. You obviously can. So, <laughs> well, I, I think I was able to bring something to the table that they mm. didn't have already, um, which was useful at the time. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, again, I'm sort of jumping a few questions ahead, but why did you leave LucasArts? Because obviously, obviously, you made a, some huge games, and let's be honest, it was a company that was going huge, you know, massive, really making a name for itself. Why did you leave? Well, it was actually a pretty easy decision uh, for me. Um, Ron asked. Uh, that was <laughs> the first <laughs> thing. It was, um, But when he told me his plan uh, of going up there and building uh, new games um, mm. at the, and building them for children, I thought that was interesting. Mm. Um, uh, just in the, the fact that it hadn't really been done well at that point. Mm. And... Um, so that was intriguing. Uh, the second thing is the games industry has always been uh, a little up and down uh, with uh, when it's going well, things go well. Uh, when yeah. things don't go well, they, um, they tend to uh, flush uh, people out the door. Um, and that um, the scum system had its own set of facilities that it was really good at. And there were also things that it just wasn't good at, like it wasn't going to make a flight simulator mm. or it wasn't, you know, there's just certain things it couldn't, couldn't do. And the writing for me, it was on the wall that there was a, a change necessary that was going to be coming, maybe right. not in the immediate future, but in a relatively short time. So looking at, um, all of the effort that I had put in in the two years that I was there, I saw the ability to continue to work on that um, by going with Ron and Joey. Yeah, yeah. So that was it was easy, and um, the people at LucasArts were great. I mean, they um, knew that you know since Ron and I were leaving, that was two thirds of the team that built mm. the the engine. Um, so they were uh, smart and they let us license the engine with the agreement that we would uh, give back. Uh, so for the first uh, few years, basically everything that we did uh, went down to them as well. That's uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that that's clever. That's really clever, actually, isn't it? Fair play to them. Yeah. No, they were smart to do it. Um, mm. And, you know, it's like when two-thirds of your team leaves, uh, you know, usually that spells disaster. 
Um, but the, it didn't at this particular point. Interesting. Did your so your Scum Engine that you, you work on humongous games? Is it? Do you know what Lucas Arts games that still helped? Was it? Was it like? Um, mm-hmm. Day of the Tentacle and Sam and Max uh, oh, benefited okay. a lot uh, from the the animation system was the thing that I I did a lot of mm-hmm. uh, lots and lots of animation <laughs> systems, um, and they benefited from uh, the animation system that we built up at Humongous. Uh, we called mm-hmm. it Sist. Um, <laughs> Another uh, lovely word. <laughs> uh, yes, we went with a. Disgusting bodily fluids for a long time, but um, I thought it was funny uh, that a cyst is something that contains bodily fluids. I thought thought it would be funny to call something cyst. Um, And so Day of the Tentacle and Sam and Max uh, benefited greatly from Mm. the humongous uh, era tools. Um, At some point, we branched pretty far right after the 3DO when we went to we went to Windows way earlier than everybody else, um, In- including Lucas Arts. Including Lucas wow. Arts, they they didn't go, um, and rightfully so. It was it was kind of a challenge to go there. Um, so, the tools that we built once we started going to using Windows everywhere inside our our studio, the DOS tools basically started getting flaky. Uh, I don't know if you used Windows back in uh, the early days when Alt-Tab was a, you know, Alt-Tab to a game had a 50-50 chance whether that game was coming back or your Windows was coming back. It's bringing back bad memories, actually, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So some of the tools that we had written when we made the transition from 320 by 200 to 640 by 480 um, Mm. were less than stable in that environment. So as we uh, knew that Windows was going to be our target of of choice for the future, um, we had to make changes. And I think we made that jump earlier than, than, and we also made um, changes to the way the uh, files were structured. So it was a little bit more difficult for them to adopt our stuff because they were mid-cycle in their games. Um, but I think there was a lot of overlap um, up until probably 95. Interesting. Oh, really interesting. Uh, I hate. I don't want to t- jump back and forth for your timeline, but I apologize. Oh, but, no worries. Um, you mentioned earlier that you kind of worked on the sort of back end of the games and so forth. Did Again, you kind of already answered, but I'd just like to know, did you... Do you ever feel like you never got the full uh, accolades, the kind of sort of look at this amazing game, look how, how it, where it's done, the, the reviews? Did you ever feel like you're kind of in the background a bit, or, or would you be happy or, what, back in those days? Are you happy to answer? Oh, that? I was. That's a bit I was of a, always happy. Spiky question. Oh yeah, I I think the uh, I always felt connected to the teams, um, mm. so I, I felt any win on their side was a win on my side. Um, mm-hmm. I, I felt always that the expertise that I brought was different than the expertise they brought. So we worked as um, an amalgam of sorts that was stronger than <laughs> any one individual component. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I, I never really felt um, 
slighted by not being mentioned um, or anything mm -hmm. like that. I think the um, it is unfortunate that my name isn't mentioned more often, uh, yeah. but only in a sense that I think my daughter would appreciate, you know, uh, me having some legacy that was known about rather than just being, you know, a person on the side. Mm. Um, but other than that, no, I, <laughs> the, the games were, were great on their own. Um, I do believe that I helped make them better than they would have been, mm -hmm. but the, uh, they're, they're separate entities, I think. Do you have a personal favorite LucasArts game? Not maybe that you worked on, not necessarily, but which, which, which what game do you think is probably the best at LucasArts? I mean, there's some huge classics there. Mm. Well, I, I have a deep fondness for Monkey One because yeah. uh, that was the first the first game that uh, used any of my code. Uh, so that one wins just hands down because it was the first for me. Um, visually, though, Day of the Tentacle or Sam and Max, I think yeah. that they knocked it out of the park on both of those, especially Day of the Tentacle. I think the fluidity of the animation, yeah. uh, that would have been a really great game to have uh, brought to you know, consoles, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, visually, it was very cartoony. Um, the, the story structure was good. Um, yeah, no, I, th I think Day I of the Tentacle might be my, my Time favorite. Time travel elements as well are so good. Yeah, I love Day of the Tentacle, I have to say. It's a great game. Um, did you ever meet George Lucas? I like to all, I like to ask all my LucasArts legends this. Did you ever get the chance to meet him and if, or any other celebrities, if you don't mind, you know, if you don't mind chipping in? You know, I never met uh, George. Uh, he was in the dining room a couple times when I had uh, lunch, um, but never uh, a front face-to-face -face meeting. It was verboten. In, in <laughs> uh, we weren't, uh, it was drilled into us that uh, basically if spoken to, you could talk to a celebrity, but do not speak to them uh, without <laughs> them speaking first. Yeah. Uh, so I, I kept my head down and uh, shied away from any, you know, firing offense like you know, being visible. No. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I don't blame you, really. But did you see a lot of, like, obviously, I think Steven Spielberg was there knocking about sometimes. With quite a few. I, I did groups. see a number of uh, famous people uh, at the lunch um, and walking up to the, the the front of Skywalker Ranch. You would see them and would, it, like yeah. move the other way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it was a fantastic place. Uh, I definitely. As my first real job, uh, I didn't realize what an amazing place it was um, yeah, yeah. at the time. I mean, I, I knew it was LucasArts or Lucasfilm Games at that point, um, and it had a, a tremendous reputation. Uh, but looking back on it, um, you know, amazing first job. Amazing. Oh, yeah. I bet. I, bet. <laughs> I mean, we, we've had on the podcast for David Fox uh brett mogilevsky uh noah forstein and, and tammy as well tammy borowick and she was very um I, I put my hands up she was like you must get brad on the show so she was very uh insistent and, and she said you've got some great stories on it and it's, it's come true today but i mean you've worked some huge unbelievable people that are still and you know legends in the game um uh, what why what qualities uh did these people bring uh i know you said it's your first job uh brad but 
why was LucasArts so special in that sort of 90, 80s, 90s period? You know, I, I think it was diversity. Um, it, everybody that worked there had a pretty distinct background. Um, and what they brought to the table uh, wasn't what every other person brought to the table. I mean, in the artist uh, side of things, you had people that had a wide variety of core talents that they brought to the table. Obviously, talent was something that everybody had. Um, but I think it was the, the differences in personal experience that uh, they brought. And the hiring process weeded out people that were maybe overly talented and really boisterous. They seemed to, um, I, I don't know, I won't, I won't say, um, hmm. yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the, the special sauce was with the people. Uh, <laughs> I think that um, diversity and also letting people interact at every level. I mean, there yeah. wasn't a strict hierarchy of sorts. I mean, there was a hierarchy, obviously, in in, uh, in the business portion of it. But there wasn't anybody that was standoffish. Uh, right. If you wanted yeah. to talk to somebody, you could talk to them. Um, they were genuine um, and hardworking. I think that might actually be the thing that um, both Humongous and um, LucasArts was tremendous about is the people were really dedicated to make things happen. And it wasn't, they didn't shirk. It wasn't a job in the same way um, that, you know, that you feel like, Oh, I have to do this. You know, it's like, Oh, I want to do this. And we have a goal and it's getting closer and closer. Um, and I think people that have that drive to achieve, um, yeah, see it yeah. as a as a short term thing um, to get over whatever obstacles in front of them and do anything creatively to make that happen. So right. Good on diversity. You, no, really, yeah, no, I really appreciate that. What what a great answer. Um, I mean, before we move on to humongous quickly, do you have any sort of funny stories or? particular memories of your times at LucasArts? Uh, you, you were there for, was it, was it three or four years, you said, Brad? Was, it was only two at this point. Two, two years, uh, fair was, enough. But was, was two. I do remember uh, playing uh, Nerf guns quite a bit um, <laughs> uh, with ridiculous... Um, we had these uh, Nerf guns that, that had just come out around the same time period uh, with you know big launching things. But we also had uh, people who had... Uh, makeshift things that would shoot projectiles <laughs> and uh, those hurt more <laughs> the yeah. nerf guns. I, I remember being uh, uh, chased around uh, the little main lobby area by uh, Ed Killam um, right. he was a, he was a, a, quite the I don't know how to put it a very active uh, <laughs> person so you'd shoot him and he would oh you know, fall over and just play into it, uh, which was, I remember that quite well. I also remember playing uh, Midi Maze on Atari STs. Um, that was a very formative uh, uh, experience, just in the, what type of gameplay um, was possible. I could see that um, always 
bringing laughter and camaraderie in in its play. Even though you obviously are playing face to face, you know, uh, it went short, small areas, but it was a, one of the very first group experiences that was more than two people playing a game. And I remember that very, very fondly. And I remember the just glorious laughter <laughs> coming yeah, out yeah, of yeah. it when somebody <laughs> would uh, get shot. Um, I remember that pretty well. Ah, great stuff. And no, thank you. I really appreciate it hearing these stories. It's so incredible learning about this particular time in video game history. Thank you, Brad. Um, Humongous Games, obviously you moved on. How how long were you working at Humongous Games and how would you kind of compare it to your role at LucasArts, for example? It was very similar, uh, still in the, the technology side of things. I did branch out into some game design stuff, um, but mostly that was arcadey type of experiences, not yeah. storytelling. Uh, uh, as much as I was into storytelling and uh, whatnot, uh, the talents I had clearly lied some more out wanting the games. I, you know, started with a, you know, idea of making a story game and what I ended up doing was building a, um, a system to build systems with it, you know, so build a little oh, database yeah. things that would house all your, you know, monsters, house all of your geometry, you know, for the level and whatnot. Um, and I never really got to make that game that I had in mind, but I, I certainly built the pieces to make a game <laughs> out of it. Um, <laughs> so uh, at Humongous, uh, we had a very similar vibe, uh, not too surprisingly, because mm-hmm. we had, uh, we we brought with us whatever uh, special, you know, nest that the, the people who had already um, worked at, at LucasArts. So we had a familiarity with the, the process of building games and a kind of a philosophy of how to build them. And that um, I think benefited us greatly because culturally we had um, very similar vibe. It wasn't a, you know, strict hierarchy. Um, we had lots of people moving from, you know, role to role, uh, lots of uh, movement within the company. So people that uh, usually started as game testers um, brought with it their tremendous talents. And some of those people went on to be, you know, marketing people or uh, game producers or, you know, whatever talent that they had, um, we were good at utilizing them. So as people would expose themselves to us, <laughs> so to speak, uh, <laughs> as as we would get familiar with what their talents were, uh, we would uh, bring them into the fold, if you will. So, uh, right, good stuff. And obviously, targeting a different audience, um, younger children, and so forth. Was that was that a different mindset, or was it? I suppose for you, Brad, it wasn't too much of a change. Was is that fair from your particular point of view no it wasn't from my side of things um you know whether i'm drawing a spaceship or i'm drawing a um, a cute little car uh it (laughs) doesn't matter you know as long as it's uh done well uh i I will display it Uh, the um the children's market was very different um three year a three-year-old and an eight-year-old are very different beasts um so designing software that can 
span that distance um, was was a bit of a challenge. Yeah, yeah. But I think that um, we didn't talk down to the children or, or even dumb the, the game system down. We were building on an engine that had shipped, um, well, at the time, you know, AAA titles, yeah. if you will. Yeah. And so we were able to leverage that quite well. So the, the quality bar that we brought just kind of the, the baseline of technology that we started with was really high. So we were able to just tell stories um, and animate them well. And um, some of the ways that um, we built the software was uh, special. And it, it came from you know, stuff from LucasArts as well, just the kind of philosophical um, changes. Ron obviously had a tremendous amount to do with that. But he had uh, really strong feelings about death in games and setting back people's progress. Right, yeah. Uh, and a lot of those kind of philosophies uh, trigger over into uh, younger audiences as well because something that, you, you can't take away things from people in games. Uh, they, mm. they get uh, frustrated by that, uh, mm. to say the least. So, you know, it's like having characters randomly come in and steal something from you um, is something that we would never do in, in a right. uh, children's game. Um, so the punitive uh, things in most <laughs> video games we had to do, do away with. Um, but... Hmm. That is that is interesting. Yeah, you, know, you have to really think about how. Yeah, you want to raise children, I suppose, and, and the morals and stuff. Things that, well, you know, you don't maybe have to think about too much for adult games as much. But you know, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah really interesting. I, I certainly uh, appreciated. I mean, I'm not a particularly um, violent type of uh, game. Pro, you know, you know, that's not my my bag. I, I do have to say, I and enjoyed you know smash tv Street oh, fighter exactly. 2 and all yeah. of all of the uh the various games but once mm -hmm. games got into um running around with shotguns and things like that uh, i questioned my uh sense of satisfaction shooting somebody in the back um i you know i i played them yeah <laughs> and i enjoyed them but yeah. <laughs> but it's not uh the type of experience that I would go for. Uh, no, fair enough. No, fair enough. Um, I mean, after after Humongous Games, what what did you carry on the video game industry, buddy? Still in it today? I'd love to know what you you up to these days if you have to share. Well, um, I did. Uh, when I struck out on my own, and I did lots of um, contract work with people that I had previously worked with. Uh, <laughs> funny enough, uh, people who had gotten used to the tools that I built. Um, wanted something similar to that. So I did lots and lots of contract work. Uh, somebody nice. was, you know, come to me and say, Oh, you remember this program and how it worked? And yeah, I remember. And, <laughs> <laughs> and for the right price, I will remember it really well for you. <laughs> uh, so the uh, contracting and stuff like that, I spent most of my um, adult life, I would say. My child life was at Humongous and at uh, LucasArts, but my, my adult life where I learned all of the things that I'm not good at, uh, like being a business person, uh, 
read the market first. Don't make games first. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, let's see. I, I did some mobile games, uh, which mm-hmm. were uh, quite a, a learning lesson. Um, we got into mobile around 2003, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a very bizarre market. Um, it was kind of mm-hmm. like the 80s in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, lots of the um, – I'm sorry. That's somebody knocking on my door. Um, the the types of optimizations and things that you would do in early mobile phones, I mean, these machines were – trinkets you know barely yeah. capable of displaying a menu fast uh, so a lot of the types of uh, optimizations and uh, squeezing things down was very similar so I, I spent a lot of time in the mobile market you know making games that were 64k and that uh, was uh, a good a good lesson on uh, <laughs> what not to do uh, uh, and what to do. Uh, no, fair enough. Um, I mean, again, are you still in contact with people back in your LucasArts days, like like Ron Gilbert, for example, and things like that? And are you still friends? And uh, uh-huh. Yeah, no, I I don't speak with Ron as often um, as I should. I actually don't speak to anybody as often as I should. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, as a matter of fact, earlier today, I got an email from uh, Eric uh, Wilmunder, uh and occasionally we'll get together and have lunch because yep. uh, he lives uh, not too far away. It's about an hour away. Uh, so it's right in the uh, same area. So I, I see them more often. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, Ron, you know, we uh, used to uh, chat quite frequently when we were uh, working in similar circles. Um, but as as time progresses, you know, that yeah. you know, people just kind of, fall out of your daily communication um and then it's easy to you know let a month go by or a year go by I get it. Uh, but, but obviously obviously bad you you know about return of monkey island you would have heard were you can i it's a bit of a naughty question but were you, were you told about this game before were you did ron kind of give you any hints or did you find out when it was revealed or i found out when it was revealed and what an excitement um, <laughs> yeah I, uh, April Fool's Day, cool. wasn't it? I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was, you know, taken by surprise. I mean, I knew he was working on something, oh. but I didn't know what. And I, lots of the people that I, I I chat with, they can't talk about what they're working on. So I'm I'm fairly used to saying, you know, how are you doing? And, you know, and anything yeah. that you're doing that's fun, you know, outside of work. <laughs> so um, that um, sort of thing. Uh, you know, we would get um, off topic is usually where, where our yeah. conversations would be. Can't you know, talk about not, games. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. So, you know, you just kind of learn to work around that. Um, obviously, there's a chance that when this interview comes out, Return of Monkey might might be out. I don't know if there's a chance. But are you excited about the game? Are you, are you looking forward to it yourself? Super excited about it. I, I can't wait to see how they deal with verbs and just the managing of inventory items. Um, yeah. In today's computing, you know, input devices and whatnot, um, there's a lot of interesting challenges uh, on accessibility to 
to say the very least. Um, but yeah, I, I can't wait to see what they did with uh, how you pick up something and put it in your inventory and manage the inventory as, as, as goofy as that sounds. I'm, yeah. I'm very interested to see where they brought that problem space or what they I brought. Wonder- do you, do you know if Ron's using the scum system? I don't suppose. Do you know? No, he, uh, he's using something new that he whipped up. Um, matter of fact, in Thimbleweed Park, he also built a brand new engine for that as well. Um, as far as I know, the uh, scum system's last game was probably in 2002. Right. Okay. Interesting. So, so that uh, it's been a ways, way yeah, away. That's, <laughs> that's that's a sh- yeah. And that's a shame in a way. Um, the game I'm looking forward to Return of Monkey Island. I have to say I'm a massive fan of the series, but it did it did get a bit of negative press regarding the art style, and I, I quite like the art style personally. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the game. I'm, I'm willing to sort of have a very big open mind to it. But I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I think I think Ron was a bit, and rightly so, was a bit, a bit upset by some of the the, 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 the criticism. What, what, what do you have any personal opinions about that? Oh, I think the the art style is fantastic. Fluidity yeah. of motion is just incredible. Uh, if you look at the the way it transitions in the flip book, um, yeah, yeah, that's at, great. when it transitions to when you see Guybrush um, walk across uh, or in that uh, ship, and it it's listing to the left and right, and it is the waves are there. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of motion in that screen. Um, it may not, you know, be, you know, hand-drawn. Mm. Uh, it's definitely highly stylized, but so were all the other games. Um, but, yeah, no, I can't I can't wait to see it in motion. Uh, I think that the little website that they did where you, you can uh, interact with Stan and, and uh, hear his, you know, dialogue just makes me want more dialogue. I, yeah. just, I can't wait to to hear it and the fact that it's all going to be voiced and just beautiful is uh, icing on the cake 100 percent, yeah no I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm happy that that kind of genre is making a bit of a comeback actually it was it was kind of dormant for a few years wasn't it i know it had a few hits now and then but it was uh i think it's good to see that that, that particular genre coming back actually would you i'm sure you agree brad you know i do i i think that uh story driven games are are my particular thing i enjoy you know things like uh, uncharted a, a lot yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the action portions of it are starting to get on the up side of my or get the upper hand on me i'm not <laughs> as, as good at those as i could be um but story-wise i can follow it just fine uh, <laughs> and actually i i'm sure you know i think in an, i think it's uncharted 4 i think there's a monkey island or guybrush fruit of portrait i think like an easter egg i don't know if you know that but oh, I, I, think, I had I think, seen that i think it's hidden away somewhere yeah i, I think I've, I've seen it personally but i've seen pictures online and stuff but there you go a little easter egg there um brad i've got a tough question for you this is uh we're almost the end of the interview by the way but this is such a great chat but this is one of the hardest questions i ask all my guests what are your top three video games of all time Hmm. Top three. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, Colossal Caves uh, Adventure um, has to be in there because that's the thing that uh, really ignited a fire uh, for me. Uh, Super Mario World. Yes. Classic. And Tetris. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Those, I haven't played the first game, but the other, well, you know, I want to play the first one now, but the, the other two, you can't can't are you a big fan of nintendo then nintendo games i'll take it then i am a big fan of their uh, gameplay style 
And uh, I, I'm not necessarily a uh, a fan of what they do with their older titles. They kind of keep those a little too locked down. I think that uh, emulation is where most people can play these games this yeah. day. And we need a way to monetarily gift the the stuff back to the, the owners of the project. Yeah. But the, the consumer, it shouldn't matter where they play it. They mm. should just have the right to play it. And as long as they paid for it. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree. It should be whatever. If you want to play it on your toaster, hey, uh, why, why would they care? So if you buy it, buy it once, you think that's, that's it. You kind of bought the product. You should be able to access it sort of thing. Well, I think that there needs to be a different type of purchase. Mm. Um, it, I think that, you know, I've repurchased games on many different platforms over yeah, the years. Too, yeah. uh, I mean, I can't count the number of copies of, you know, <laughs> some things I've bought. <laughs> um, but I, I think that if we had a mechanism for, you know, not, not necessarily ownership, because I, I think ownership mm. is, uh, it's more like um, the, the, the right to view. Um, and I think if we had that, that would change things because MAME is an amazing piece of software. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think it's, as we go forward, it's just going to get more and more important because we've got this history mm-hmm. of, of software that is lost to time if we don't preserve it. Yeah. Uh, which actually is very funny. It's a loss to time is something that, um, uh, uh, I've recently been talking with some people and it's like the archiving process for games is really um, quite sad. Uh, a lot yeah. of games uh, you can't, um, can't play yeah, and yeah, certainly can't rebuild them. No. And some of it's been lost forever. Sadly, that some of the, the source code is it. I've, I talked to a lot of guests actually, Brad, where they've made games, which are never fully completed and they're, long gone and it's a, it's a shame really even games that haven't been released that are like 90 percent done I, I, anyway we could go on forever couldn't we but yeah it's, it is sad that i agree pre- preservation of classic titles or even just mediocre titles let's be honest is important because it's people's you've, you've seen it you've done it you've, you've worked in that industry um you want to get the access to be able to play those games yeah, exactly and as as we get computing power that's off the charts I mean, it's yeah. no longer if you can you can almost imagine anything today and make it happen. Yeah. It it becomes budget um, and time, which is really just budget. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Um, just going to chuck around a question: Did you ever start work, or did you ever did you ever see any work at Lucas Arts or even Humongous of a game that w- was created, you know, started work but never finished? Have interest? I'm always <laughs> interested in kind of unreleased games. Oh, uh, sure. <laughs> Lots of prototypes, uh, oh, okay. as you can imagine. Uh, we would uh, do little competitions and things like that to, to keep people's interest going. And that's where we had um, a thing called Junior Arcades, where people would take a game idea and flesh it out in three to six months rather than, you know, nine to 12. Yeah. And those um, sort of games, uh, a lot of those did ship. Uh, some of them, you know, would get built and then everybody would, you know, play it and decide, you know, this isn't really a, a game yet. Um, but, um, yeah, lots of lots of prototypes. 
Um, I, I wish I could come up with a, a one that's off the top of my head. Uh, there's there's games canceled games is another thing that mm-hmm. uh, is really unfortunate uh, that happens in our industry. Uh, things that uh, never see the day <laughs> see daylight. Uh, just for whatever reason, whether it budgeting concerns or the project got skewed in some way, um, it, it happens. Uh, trying to think of, uh, there was a, a game called Mishap that uh, we did at Humongous, and it uh, took uh, and used uh, 3D uh, pre-rendered characters and stuff like that. I really would have liked to have seen that actually uh, happen. Uh, yeah, never made it. The um, and then of course just endless game <laughs> play variations. Uh, lots of things you know you need to actually build to see that it's not a good idea. Mm. And uh, as you say, uh, you know it's like even even the crappy games deserve to <laughs> to have life. It's true. Uh, Brad, look, you've been such a gentleman, and I, I love hearing these stories about the kind of sort of the stories we don't hear about too often. You know about the the behind the scenes kind of work. I think it's ridiculously important. And um, you know, thank you for being part of uh, so many games in my childhood as well. Growing up, you know, made, it made a big influence on me. So I know, I know our listeners and viewers will love this. So thank you, Brad. Well, thank you. I've got one I, final question. I enjoyed this quite a bit. Thank you. Now I've got one final, it's a, again a quick, bit of a tough question, a bit of a silly question arguably, but we ask all our guests, um, could be any character by the way, if you if you could share a few drinks with any video game character, who would you choose and why? I would choose uh, Sully uh, from the Uncharted series. I think oh. he would have good stories and be a fun drinking buddy. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. You can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots more retro gaming goodness and to delve into our archives. Our podcasts are also available on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review and a rating. We'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support Arcade Attack, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash arcadeattack, which will give you access to exclusive podcasts, interviews, and other bonus content. So, until next time, take care, and we'll speak to you soon.